In Matthew 11, Jesus invites all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him, and he would give them rest. But in John 15, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose and appointed you. So does Jesus invite us to choose him in salvation, or does he choose us? We know that the Bible teaches God is sovereign over all things, but does that mean we don't have free will? How does the sovereignty of God work alongside humanity's responsibility to obey God's commands? Calvinism and Arminianism are two systems of theology that attempt to explain the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the matter of salvation. Calvinism is named for John Calvin, a French theologian who lived from 1509 to 1564. Arminianism is named for Jacobus Arminius, a Dutch theologian who lived from 1560 to 1609. For the past 500 years, Christians, mainly Protestant evangelicals, have continued to debate these systems of theology related to salvation and how exactly it works. The dispute centers around an understanding of what the Bible means when it talks about concepts such as depravity, or the sinfulness of man, predestination, or the divine foreordaining of all that will happen and all who will be saved, and atonement, and who will be included in the atoning work of Christ. So, which one is right? Is it that God is absolutely sovereign and ordains some people to be saved and others to be sent to hell? Or is it that God invites all human beings to place faith in Christ and be saved? And what if there was a podcast where people were interviewed from both sides of this argument and the listeners decide, with open Bibles, which viewpoint seems most biblical? Welcome back, everybody, to the Beards and Bible podcast, the podcast where we talk about all things Bible, some things beards, and everything else in between. My name's Josh. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Gabe Rutledge. Gabe, how you doing, man? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm good because you woke up this morning. That's true. Oh, wow. That was, that was, um, <laughs> start, <laughs> Shots are fired. Shots fired, yeah. And I, yeah. I got all the... Uh, I have all the really needy, affectionate cats locked out of the, the office this morning. So, Awesome. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what kind of distractions come our way. Um, yeah. Towards the I end. think we should probably, you know how like the Super Bowl's this week and people place bets on really weird things that happen in the Super Bowl? I, I think we should do that for episodes of Beards and Bible to see like which one of our kids interrupt first or which cat you can hear meowing or my dog scratching at the door or mm. random things. Mm. Do you think... Do you think God already knows which distractions will come our way? I would say maybe he has predestined the mm. distractions that would happen. Mm. Or is our, <laughs> are our children making a free will choice and decision to come ah, independent of his predestination? That, mm. is, that is a very deep theological meaty question. Do our children have free will to distract us as we are recording this podcast, or are they predestined and foreordained to be instruments in our sanctification? What we need is someone to come on to our podcast and help us sort this out. I, if only that were, if only that were the arrangement. But, but wait, who's this? It is. <laughs> I'm looking at our show notes. We actually have a guest today. I'm actually looking at I, 
at, at my webcam, and there he is at, on the other side of it. Uh, today, we are talking about all these things. We're talking about predestination and the foreknowledge of God and if mankind has free will. And what we are unpacking today is Calvinism. And we have a very special guest that I'll introduce here in a minute to talk about that. But this is a uh, this is a really, really heady topic. Does this make your head swim, Gabe, when we think about these things? It does. And and let me just say, go on record, that was probably the cringiest transition <laughs> we've, we've made so far. <laughs> I don't know, because we've been some pretty terrible ones. But uh, yeah. I, yeah. I like how you did that, because I was going to try to work that in, but uh, you beat me to it. Yeah, Yeah, that one was up there. Yeah. Yeah, this this so is something that you know I get I get asked on a somewhat regular basis. Um, you know, does God know who's going to heaven, who's going to hell? Does God know who's going to ultimately be saved, who's not? Um, should I bother praying for my lost loved one if He knows? You know, these kinds of things. These these come up, mm-hmm. and you know, both people at our congregation and you know students that I teach. So yeah, it's a very it's a very big issue. It's very something something that I think we we is worth delving into with these series and I'm excited to be doing these. Um, like I said, it, having opposing views come up, um, and, and letting you, the listeners decide for yourselves kind of where you fall. Um, and, and I do want to say, give yourself grace because if I'm, if I met the Gabe Rutledge of 10 years ago, my theological views I'm sure have changed and evolved over the years. If I've, as I've studied scripture and I've learned more about the nature of my creator and his will for my life. So allow yourself that room to change and evolve, um, but stay um, grounded on the fundamentals of your faith um, and Absolutely. You know, un- unwavering on those things, but allow yourself the room and, and the grace for yourself or other people around you to change as well as, as, as they have further revelation through his word. Yeah. I used to uh, love what Dr. Rutland would say. Dr. Rutland is a mentor of mine and president of the university we graduated from. He used to talk when he was teaching on the Holy Spirit, he said, I knew a lot more about the Holy Spirit 10 years ago than I know now. <laughs> and, and he was in tongue in cheek saying that as he's grown, as he's studied, as he's um, learned more of scripture, his viewpoint changed. But um, yeah, I mean, that that is the hope that we are always learning, that we're always opening our minds and our hearts to what God's word says. And so what this series, this is the first of a two-part series, and we're going to be diving into one viewpoint, which is Calvinism, and then our next installment of the series, we will talk about Arminianism. And uh, I would really encourage anybody listening to this, if you have a bent towards one or the other, uh, please don't have your mind made up before you listen to this. Um, Let's search the scriptures, let's talk about it, and let's listen with open minds and open hearts. Our guest today is a good friend of mine and a guy that I have worked with and had the pleasure of working with for uh, the past few years. His name is Mike Lee. He is a pastor in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, uh, with the Experience Community Church Murfreesboro. Uh, Mike, how you doing, man? And uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Doing well, man. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, yeah, so um, been in ministry for 35 years now uh, and uh, grew up Southern Baptist so mm. uh, the two things you could not be as a Southern Baptist were Calvinistic or charismatic. So uh, I've kind of bust. I'm, good thing I'm not a Southern Baptist anymore because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would not fit the mold. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, uh, educated at a Baptist college in Marshall, Texas, East Texas Baptist University. And then uh, got my Master in Divinity from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. 
And uh, as far as ministry, just I've served, uh, you know, mostly uh, started off early, first couple of churches doing youth ministry. And then I've been a lead pastor at a couple of churches and associate pastor at a couple of churches. So, yeah. So anyway, I've been think- wow. thinking about this stuff a, a long time. Yeah, man. And somehow you managed on a podcast with two young whippersnappers that have not been in the ministry hardly as long as you have. <laughs> well, again, there, there are times where some people say, man, you just know so much. No, it, you know, the thousand year old man knows a lot just because he's lived a long time. So uh, it's yeah. not that I'm smart or anything. It's just I've just been around a long time and, you know, kind of had a lot, you know, some time to think about this stuff. Well, you've you've been around the block long enough to know some really awesome uh 80s Christian music, and you and I have talked about this, and that's one of the, well, it's really the reason you're on this podcast. It has nothing to do with this, these theological things. It's because you know Mylon Lefevre and yes, and Broken Heart, yeah, and Broken Heart and Petra and all those guys. So yeah, uh, in fact, uh, I would probably it'd be easier for me to talk about that than this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we'll have to do another episode. We just talk about all the amazing Carmen songs that are out there yeah, from, and, uh, from a man who actually lived it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So tell us, like, on which side of this debate, um, and we'll explain, we'll unpack these terms a little bit later. So if somebody's listening to this and they're like, okay, what in the world is a Calvinist? Who's Calvin? Who's all that? But on what side of this debate, Calvinist, Arminian, would you find yourself leaning? And at what point in your Christian life did you find yourself leaning more towards one of these viewpoints than the other? Yeah, so obviously I, I would lean more toward Reformed theology, the Calvinistic side. Uh, a lot of times I prefer Reformed theology over Calvinism because it has such a, uh, it's been caricatured in such a way that mm. uh, it, you know, when you say that word, it's just like again charismatic. You know, it's there, it's a buzzword that that sets people off. So, uh, so a lot of times I lean toward that. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about that. Um, so. Um, Back in the 90s when Greg Boyd uh, wrote a book called God at War, and uh, it was that first kind of shot across the bow about open theism and that God has created a world and limited himself in such a way that uh, he's made it where he learns along with his creation. And so that choices are real, you know, that people really do have free will and God it almost becomes like a holy, uh, you know, first responder that he sees bad things happen. The bell rings in heaven and he's like, Oh, you know, here I come to save the day. And, uh, and honestly, at first that kind of really, um, it kind of, I, I liked it. You know, again, growing up uh, Baptist and, and most Southern Baptists were very anti-Calvinist Calvinism, uh, of course, at that time, I didn't know what those terms meant, but I just knew that that's, you know, you, you believed in real free will and making a decision for Christ and all those kinds of things. So uh, that God would create a world in which decisions were real and had real depth and meaning. Oh, well, man, that's that's great. But then what that set me on was a, uh, a path of studying, OK, what does the sovereignty of God really mean? Hmm. And uh has God limited himself and uh, what does it mean to have real choice and all those kinds of things. And honestly, that's what began to, as I studied the scriptures, um, I didn't necessarily yet have the term Calvinism in my mind or, or any of that, but I did begin to see as I read scriptures, no, God is sovereign over all things. You know, there's, Hmm. there's not one, 
molecule, not one atom that's floating around that does its own thing, that God is at work and, and moving according to the pleasure of his will to will yeah. and to do whatever he chooses. So, so, so you would say that your discovery of this viewpoint really was a response to what you felt was a unbiblical viewpoint of God from, from that book that was popular. Yeah. Yeah. So as I read it, you know, it, it, it began to uh, give me a lot of questions, you know, is this what the Bible really teaches? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, you know, uh, Dr. Boyd used scriptures and things like that, but, uh, and both sides of this debate use scripture. So it's, you right. know, at some point you have to just fall to say, well, you know, what is the meaning of is, right? <laughs> and right, uh, right. Know, what's the meaning of us and what's the meaning of yeah. the world and things like that. So. Sure, 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 sure. Well, what kind of an impact has this had on your walk with Jesus? I mean, when, when people say, hey, this is a silly conversation, this, you know, at the end of the day, like it's, it's all going to work itself out anyway. Why would we go into the weeds with this? Um, some of us that uh, um, have really studied this would, would also say like, no, you, you study this so that you can more fully know the character and the nature of God so that you can fully love him and worship him better. So have you uh, had that experience? I mean, has this strengthened your walk with Jesus? Has it made it more intellectual? Has it made it more mechanical? What's it done in your relationship with the Lord? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so uh, I, I have the saying, uh, you know, you've been part of teaching our ministry and training program. One of the things I remind the guys of when we're studying theology that theology should always lead to doxology. Mm. Um, it should always lead to worship. In fact, I, I've joked before that we really do the music worship set in the wrong order. We ought to hear the God the word of God preached and taught and then respond by worshiping him. And, uh, mm. and so what this has done for me is it's uh, magnified my desire to know this God who loved me and died for me. It, it is, uh, I mean, there are certain songs that, you know, I'll just weep when we're, we're singing them in worship because it reminds me of what my God has done for me, not what I've done for him, mm. but what he has done for me. And so, yeah, it, it's to me, this is the farthest thing from mechanical or, um, you know, uh, intellectual it's it is right. it's it's a wide open invitation to not only know this god but to be in relationship with him and uh oh. it, it it thrills me in, in a lot of ways yeah i love that that theology should lead to doxology that's good that's really good well um here's what we're gonna do we'll we'll dive right in and um so both of these systems of theology, we have Calvinism and we have Arminianism. And at the front of the episode, we talked about kind of who these are named after. And so if, if someone's not familiar with these terms, Calvinism, there was a French theologian, John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564. And he was famous for writing um, some very, very, very... Uh, earth-shattering <laughs> writings during the Protestant Reformation. Mike, Mike, tell us just a little bit about the impact that this 
theologian had and, and why he is credited for coming up with this system of theology and what was going on kind of in Christianity when he wrote this and why would he come up with his own system of, uh, you know, wh- why would people start referring to themselves as Calvinist? Because I've never referred to myself as like a, a, a Rutlegist or a Leist. Mm-hmm. Those are you guys' last names. So, Yeah. And of course, you know, we cannot take history at, it doesn't happen in a, in a bubble. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, and and the other most important thing, I think, you know, when we think about Calvin Luther, when we think about the Puritans, people like that, the majority of them were pastor theologians. And so they, they were writing these things to teach their congregation how to understand God's word and, and systematizing some things to help their people better know God's word. And so I think that's important to think they seem to be in the academy where in reality, these were common church attenders who are listening to John Calvin preach a sermon where he's written notes that he then puts into a book that begins. And at first it was a very small, the Institutes of Christian, yeah, Christianity, mm-hmm. where it was just a few th- pages, and he, uh, Calvin, his entire life, continued to expand and expand, expand until it became what it is today. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was just basically a response. Uh, you know, theology. Uh, there, there's a sense in which God's word means what it means, mm-hmm. but there's also the sense where we look through a glass darkly in so many ways, and that's why there's different interpretations, different. Uh, understandings of God's word, because we as human beings are trying to understand the the mind of God as he's revealed himself to us. And uh, so in that time, uh, as again, the Reformation was very young, 1517, right? October 31st, 1517, when Luther nailed the 99 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. Um, it, it's, it's not a, a like, thing that's been going on like we have now for 500 years. It's right, it, right, it right, was right. very new, this reformation and response to how is one saved and right. how, how does one understand uh, what God's role is in that salvation and what has God provided for us? So it was a, it was basically a response to the Catholic church saying in order to be saved, you must do what the Catholic church tells you to do. You got to pay indulgences. You've got to, Go to mass, but you're not going to understand anything that's going on in mass because it's in Latin. You can't read the scriptures. And the theolo- the reformers came around and said, "No, we're saved by Christ, and it's the solas of the Reformation." Yeah, yeah. yeah and and again, it, there was this, especially with Luther, there was this fear of God in such a way that he never felt that he could ever be good enough to be saved. Never felt mm-hmm. like he uh, he was always in fear of the wrath of God, and uh, by God's grace, his eyes were open to the beauty of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and uh, that mm-hmm. that was the teaching of Scripture, which relieved this pressure of always having to please this God that he saw as some kind of ogre and and you know almost abusive father, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why oftentimes these five points are called the doctrines of grace. It's not, Cal- right. not Calvinism. Right. It's, it's the doctrines of grace. How does God's grace work in real time in the lives of believers? So Calvin was essentially unpacking 
those ideas that Luther kind of set into motion. Of course, Martin Luther did come up with those. He was, you know, read the book of Romans and he kind of renewed an interest and kind of shown new light on it. And so that started the fire and Calvin essentially started preaching that in his church and began to kind of say, Hey, here's, here's kind of how grace works. Is that, is that yeah, fair? I, Do you think I, that's I kind think of that's how fair? And, and okay. it's, um, you know, uh, to quote Billy Joel, you know, Calvin did not start the fire, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what we can say is that, uh, in a lot of ways, Calvin kind of became the theologian of the Reformation and gotcha. um, really began to put meat onto that bare bones of, of many things that Luther. And, and to, you know, again, to be honest, there are flavors of reform thought so that right. Calvin disagreed with some of Luther's theology and later other uh, theologians, Calvinistic the, theologians, disagree with some of Calvin's stuff. So, so, so when someone says, "Hey, I, I lean towards more Reformed theology," this is why they would call it Reformed theology because it was theology that was kind of fleshed out during the Reformation. That's correct, right? Yep. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, Gabe, at this point, you does that make sense to you? Do you have any questions on that or reflections on that before we dive into the the meat of it? Yeah, I think that's a good explanation, and um, yeah, I think I think one of the the biggest um, hurdles I think that people kind of have to, to get over with reform theology, and one of the questions I so often get, and I'm probably ill-equipped in answering um, if I'm coming at it from that angle, is if God um, predestined everything, if he, if he if he's kind of predetermined who has sinned and who has not sinned. One of the overarching questions, and Mike, I'd like to get your um, your viewpoint on this: is Is there any use, or what is the what profit is there in, in like praying for friends or family who are lost? And um, that's probably the most frequent question I get about Reformed theology, especially coming from some of my high schoolers. I guess is Is there any point in evangelizing or praying for those who are lost if you're coming if you're approaching it from that viewpoint? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So uh, that's really a great question, Gabe, and uh, uh, a uh, a true theologian, J.I. Packer, wrote a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And uh, I would commend that book to anyone that really wants to answer that question, at least from a Reformed uh, person, uh, Dr. Packer, who just passed away not too terribly long ago, actually. Uh, but so the, here's the thing about uh, so there are terms in the Bible, election, predestination we've got to at least deal with those when they come up. So that's, right. that's the thing. When you think about predestination, it, it, and, and you're kind of getting into again here, this idea of um, what are we predestined to and what are the conditions of our predestination? So Gabe, when, when someone says, well, why should I pray for someone who is uh, maybe unelect? That means that they'll never have a chance to uh, they, they may be offered salvation, but they can't accept it because they aren't the elect. And that's where they're getting to at that point. Mm -hmm. But uh, before I answer that, let me just say that it's the same problem for those who would not be reformed in their theology, because if predestination, let's just say it, it was predestination based on is it based on the decrees of God or is it based on the foreknowledge of God? So, for instance, if it's based on the foreknowledge of God, which is what uh, 
most Armenians would say is that God in his foreknowledge looked down in history, saw that Mike as a nine-year-old boy at Orchard Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, would hear a sermon preached by Roger Kreiner, would walk down an aisle, ask Jesus into his heart. So knowing that that's going to happen, I will now predestine him to salvation. So it's not God Mm -hmm. choosing me. It's me choosing God and God then before Mm -hmm. I was formed does that. So that limits salvation as well. If we believe God's foreknowledge is perfect. So in other Mm -hmm. words, you know, I love this church sign that said, you know, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? And uh, so God can't, if God's foreknowledge is perfect, then there is a set group of people who will respond to God. Yes, it's their decision that God is responding to, but it's still set. So Mm -hmm. there is still, you know, so in other words, your friends, whichever side they come from, well, why should I pray for Bob to trust Christ if his destiny is already set because God knew he would never choose God anyway? Uh, So back to the other side is uh, the simple question about why should I pray for my friends is I believe not only has God ordained the ends, but he's also ordained the means uh, by which people are saved. And the Bible says pray. (laughs) So, you know, a Calvinist and, you know, like hyper Calvinists would be those kinds of people that would say, oh, we shouldn't pray for the lost and we shouldn't evangelize the lost. Well, then they're denying the fact that God has also ordained the means of salvation, not just uh, not just the ends of salvation, but also the means. And he tells us, so, go ahead. So the mean, the means of salvation would be the prayers of the saints and the preaching of the gospel. You know, you get yeah. into Romans 10, how can they hear unless one is sent and how beautiful mm-hmm. are the feet of those who bring good news. And so God has ordained that the preaching of the gospel is the means by which he awakens faith within people so that they do repent and believe. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So Gabe, again, I would say, because why should I pray? Well, because God will use your prayers to respond. He has ordained the means by which people are saved, not just the ends of that salvation. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for your answer. And I, I think that kind of ties into uh, sort of the omniscience of God in in that, you know, at the at the end of the story, let's say, Um, did God know everything that was going to happen throughout that story of human history? And the answer is, I mean, if he's outside of space and time and he's all knowing, then the answer is yes. Um, He knew, you know, who, who obviously would accept the gospel and who would be welcomed into his kingdom. One of the questions I had is, um, it's, it's probably uh, split, you know, and there's probably different flavors of this, obviously. um, But within reformed theology, what is the view of of the kingdom of God or heaven? You know, I know some, sometimes my students, um, especially coming from more of a Southern Baptist or Pentecostal background, they kind of have this idea that heaven and spending eternity in heaven is kind of the end goal of of your life. Um, and there's you know adherence of the the rapture uh, theology where you know you're zapped into heaven and then you spend eternity there. Um, how, how does reform theology? approach that um i don't like i said there's probably multiple different approaches to it multiple different flavors but i guess what is your approach to that is heaven the end game or is like a kingdom on earth the end game what is your view on it yeah uh and uh, yes you're absolutely right so you're getting more into eschatology now but uh the end game is the glory of god Hmm. Uh, that's that's the the end game is that god will be glorified and god has chosen 
that he would be glorified by people who he has redeemed. And so uh, the goal is for this redeemed people to be like his son, Jesus Christ. That's what Romans uh, 8 you know, says that, you know, that ultimately that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And uh, so uh, I, you know, I, I taught a sermon at the experience where I said hell to me would be being in a uh, diaper on a cloud with a harp with little wings <laughs> for eternity. So uh, that that's hell. So, you know, the Bible says in Revelation that heaven comes to earth. And so uh, to me, the, the end game is that God's people will be resurrected, uh, have resurrection bodies that will be like Jesus, that we will live on this real earth with real activities, with real culture and society, uh, with the, the privilege to enjoy God's creation without any hint of sin to the glory of God. And so, uh, to me, when we think about heaven, streets of gold, all that kind of thing, that's almost like a way station. It's a, it's a, it's a now, but a not yet in that, Mm -hmm. uh, I go to be with the Lord in his presence today. You will be with me in paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, but there's also that time that revelation tells us and other places in the Bible where there will be a people of God on this earth who will worship him for eternity. And, uh, and it won't be, you know, just sitting around singing Kumbaya. I mean, I, I, one of my great books that informs a lot of what I think about uh, this resurrection life is uh, heaven by Randy Alcorn. Yeah. Great. Book. And uh, great book. it's just, you know, I, there's going to be, I think there'll be books and music and, and sports and exploration Amen. and uh, food and, and, and laughter and uh, celebration. Uh, but uh, Gabe, if I'm, I'm hearing you say, what I think I'm hearing you say, are you saying that a lot of your students that come from a more reformed Calvinist church, the emphasis is on is on soteriology, like just get somebody saved, like, and that's all people focus on. Like the um, end goal is just to get saved, and the, the, those who would come from more of an Armenian background, um, you know, like a like Pentecostal or or Southern Baptist background, who would say, um, you know, believe in the full free will of, of humanity, so to speak. But it seems like that in the Armenian side of things, the emphasis on the emphasis seems to be on get out of hell, get into heaven. That's the end goal. Mm, okay. Where it yeah. seems like those, those in the reformed side of, of things that I've, that I've kind of, you know, had exchanges with, it seems like there is more of a kingdom on earth mindset. And I was just kind of wondering how, how, um, uniform is that across the reform theology side of things is that is that kind of a um understanding um where you know heaven is not the end game it's a kingdom on earth heaven's sort of like like you said kind of like a way station mike where it's just kind of a holding pattern and the goal is to experience god's you know glory on earth i don't know if that's more of a reform theology viewpoint on that or if that's just you know, kind of you, you individual stance on that. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't say it's just reform because I think there are Armenians, uh, those who would be on the other <laughs> side that would still have that same view of the kingdom of God. Uh, N.T. Wright and some others that will write along mm-hmm. those lines will speak about God's kingdom, that Jesus is the king. 
and uh, mm. King Jesus and, and those kinds of things. So uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that that's just one side or the other, but that's a, mm-hmm. uh, a offshoot of just, I think, some of the theology that the, the Bible reveals. Yeah, and I, I tend to really like that. I, and I, I see a lot of biblical evidence for that idea of God's kingdom coming. It's something we pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done yeah. on earth as it is in heaven. And it's it's something I think holds a lot of biblical water. It's, um, you know, goes back to the garden, how God created us. He wanted us to experience the physical pleasures of life and experience his creation. And and like you said, food and laughter and music and, and exploration. Um, but another question, and Josh, feel free to interject here anytime too. I don't no. need to be asking no, you're questions. You're but, good. No, no, you're good. Um, one of the, the questions that I often get asked, if if God predestined everything, then did God create sin? Did he create evil? <laughs> well, the short answer is no. And uh, thanks for diving into the deep end real quick. Uh, yeah, I know. It's like, it's like uh, five, 530 in the morning. Yeah, here. Could really God good? make a rock? Yes, so big. <laughs> right. So, uh, no. Uh, so the, the Bible indicates that God cannot be tempted with evil. And that, but the reality is that God, uh, that evil exists. So if God is sovereign over all things, that there is at some, there is some level in which that exists at the will of God. And yet at the same time, in such a way that God is not the author of evil. Um, and if you want me to go deeper than that, I'm sorry, I cannot. Uh, that, you know, and those are books and volumes and uh, yeah. have been written over that. Uh, so, you know, sometimes there are statements that we just have to make knowing that they are true without necessarily knowing how they can be true. Um, hmm. And um, because, again, God is unlimited, as you said earlier, he's omniscient, omnipotent, you know, omnipresent. God's all the omnis. And so there are some things that are mysteries uh, that we just have to, um, you know, accept by faith. And to me, that's just one of those things. And, and the Bible, again, clearly says that God's sovereign over all things. If evil was not a part of God's sovereign will, it would not exist. Yet at the same time, how that evil came into being, um, the Bible is mostly silent on that, other than it was found in our hearts. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, once you go past that, I, I don't I think you get kind of speculative to uh, know to no purpose at, at, at a certain level. Hmm. Well, let, let, why don't we do this? These are all awesome, awesome questions. And, and Gabe, you're going right for the jugular with some of these, man. You're just going right, <laughs> right at it. Uh, why don't we do this? Let's, let's take about 15, 20 minutes and let's just walk through. So John Calvin, when he was, when he would summarize, um, which I don't, Mike, you could tell me was, was Tulip made up after Calvin or was some, no, it was after. Okay, so when people look at the Institutes and people look at the doctrine of grace that Calvin put forth for his congregation and wrote down, um, people that want to summarize his teachings use this acronym TULIP to basically explain the five main points of Calvinist theology. And so um, Mike is just going to explain each one of these points and kind of talk to us about what Calvinist theology teaches about this and, and use scripture to kind of back that up. So um, the first point of this acronym, which the acronym is TULIP, like the flower, TULIP. And the first uh, letter stands for total 
depravity. So Mike, what is total depravity? What did Calvin say about total depravity and where did he get that idea? Yeah. And and again, I know we keep hitting the Calvin, but I think, you know, let's, you know, I would like to say, what does the Bible, I believe, teach Mm. about that? Um, Because I am not a disciple of Calvin. I'm a disciple of Jesus. So, uh, well, this is not the beards and Calvin (laughs) podcast. This is the beards and podcast. So I, I, you know, and again, to my, those who would lean on the other side, they also use the word of God. So, you know, uh, so I want to, you know, make sure we don't caricature them in such a way that uh, they're using man's theology or whatever, but Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So uh, the idea of total depravity is that uh, man uh, is, uh, affected by sin at its, at his very core uh, in such a way that uh, everything he does is tinted by sin. It doesn't mean that man can't do good things from time to time, but even at our very best, our very best is tainted by sin in such a way that uh, we um, are, are infected with this disease, as it were, to our very DNA. Um so uh, I, I sat under a pastor for a year, uh, Ray Ortland, and I loved what he said, that if sin were the color blue, everything that we do and think would have some shade of blue in it. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's really a good way to kind of think about it. So it's not that we are as bad as we could be, but we are definitely not at that level where we are as good as we should be to be uh, acceptable to God. Hmm. So this teaching that we were born into sin, so yeah. we're sinners by nature, but we're sinners by choice also. Yeah, so, I mean, and my, my answer to that when people say, oh, people are born basically good. My question is, have you ever worked in a nursery with two-year-olds? <laughs> because you can see original sin. You know, no one has to teach little Johnny to be selfish. You know, right. no one says to little Johnny, now, little Johnny, when Susie takes your toy I want you to just to smile and just say, thank you for taking my toy. No, little Johnny, we have to tell Johnny that when Susie takes your toy, don't beat her over the head with it. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's, you know, selfishness is seen early. I mean, children learn to shake their head. No, when mama's trying to feed them something, it's, it's, you, you see rebellion early on. In fact, part of what parenting is, is teaching children to curb that rebellion, to, begin to even do war with it early on. Well, why? Well, because at our very core in nature, thanks to our federal head, our, our first father, Adam and Eve, we are sinners, like you said, both by nature and by choice. So as soon as, you know, children early on, they just go by their nature. It's, it's, you know, right. they're, they're, they don't even have a concept of right or wrong, but as soon as they can begin to get a concept of right or wrong, they often choose to do the wrong thing, to rebel, right. to, you know, to fight against the goodness and stuff. So, yeah. Right. So the depravity of humanity, and and I could be wrong in this, but from what I'm understanding, this viewpoint is, is the pr- depravity of humanity makes human beings incapable of choosing God. Is that is that kind of one of the 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 outcomes of that sort of? point of this because people are so depraved they don't have the ability morally to choose god in salvation is that kind of how yeah this this and again i think i would go one step farther to say that uh you know we are dead in our that depravity means we are dead in our trespasses and sin 
And so if we are dead, uh, and the Bible says that in you know Ephesians and in Romans and other places. So if we're dead in our trespasses and sin, you know, what can a dead person do? What can a dead thing do? Nothing. It 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 can't hmm. it it can't respond because there's no life. So that in this state of uh depravity in the state of of sinfulness we have to have an outside force awaken us um, to bring us to life in such a way that we can then respond to the offer of salvation and so uh, in fact you know some have said that uh, Calvinism the other four points all logically fall from the total depravity aspect and that also gets into the free will thing, you know, because some people will say, well, if uh, God chooses us, you know, an irresistible grace, which means he overcomes our rebellion against him. It's that thing. Of, well, you know, then God limits the free will or takes away a free choice so that choices we make don't have or aren't real. But when you, when you think about freedom of the will, it's the idea of the will is, and I think it was uh, R.C. Sproul or Jonathan Edwards, somebody who said, uh, the will is the mind making decisions. And so um, when you have a will, the will does what it chooses because that's its, its DNA. And, hmm. and okay. yeah, yeah, and so if my DNA is at its very root is tainted by sin, then uh, I am in, uh, enslaved to it and I will choose what my will wants and my will wants sin. That's who I am. Hmm. So I have to hmm. have something that overcomes my natural tendency, my natural bent towards sin. Hmm. Okay. So the T stands for totally depraved that, humanity in its natural state is dead in their trespasses and sin, incapable of choosing God, incapable of uh, pure virtue, pure holiness. We just don't have it in us because we're sinners. So that would lead to the next letter, U, which stands for unconditional election. Yeah. So and we talked about that a little, about yeah, that. A little earlier about the predestination issue uh, upon what terms uh, upon which we are saved. And is it because we have done something good so that we are taking steps toward God and that God responds to those steps or is it, uh, unconditional, uh, that God has chosen us not based upon any condition that he sees in us, but strictly upon his free will to save those whom he will save. Hmm. So in other words, it, okay. Is God, do we put God on the hook to owe us salvation if I, you know, repent and believe or if I go to church enough or if I uh, throw away my weed and my drugs and my porn and start making steps toward God? Do I put God on the hook to save me or is it that God, because of his great love for sinners, chooses to save us? Hmm. And and what what scriptures would you say really back up that? Because I think this is the most. And Gabe, you can chime in here too. I think this is probably the hardest sell um, of the Calvinist viewpoint is this idea that you know there there's this predestined 
salvation. There's this unconditional election. I think that a lot of people just have a hard time wrapping their brains around it. Um, what would you say to that, Gabe? Yeah, that's what I was um, going to ask as well. Is um, and for, mainly for the, our listeners is just Mike. What are some maybe like top three, four, five verses um, that kind of on which hang a lot of the Reformed theology? Um, just for, for our listeners, I guess, kind of like to walk us through scripturally where, you know, the unconditional election thing, we can kind of see that in, in the writings of scripture. Yeah. Well, my big one would be Ephesians one, uh, beginning in verse three, blesses the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us and the beloved one. So there again, it's that idea. It's the good pleasure of his will by which he has elected us, not based on some foreseen decision that we make for him. Um, so I, I think that's the, one of the big ones. And then probably the most controversial one is Romans nine, uh, where mm-hmm. Paul is talking about mm-hmm. Jacob and Esau who were twins and, uh, that before they were even born and irregardless of any action they had taken, God chose the younger Jacob over the other Esau to the point where he says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. But again, Paul Mm -hmm. makes it clear that it is not based on anything that either one of them had done. In fact, if you've studied the scriptures, you know, Jacob was a, not a, uh, not so good of a guy. He was a liar, a (laughs) deceiver, uh, you know, shortcuts, uh, all this kind of stuff. And, um, and yet God chose him and uh, over his brother Esau, the older brother. And again, why? Well, it says because it was God's choice. It doesn't say because Jacob was better than Esau. In fact, again, as you just said, uh, you know, Jacob was, he was pretty much a a bad dude. Uh, And yet God still said, no, I will use you for my glory. So, uh, yeah, Romans 9, I think, is that other passage where uh, uh, it speaks, I think, pretty clearly to an unconditional election unto salvation, not based on anything within the person, but simply based on God's sovereign choice. Hmm. Yeah, that's a I've had so many folks ask me about Romans 9. Um, yeah. I'm thinking of a lady from from our church who in a panic called me and she's like, we were doing a Bible study at my house and we brought Romans nine and she goes, and we just don't understand. This is just the hardest portion of scripture. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult scripture, I think to reconcile just from a human vantage point. Yeah. But, and then um, the, the reason it's controversial too, is that a reformed theologians mostly take it that God was speaking specifically to individuals, Jacob and Esau, Whereas more those on the uh, Armenian side would say that it was uh, an election of nations. Um, and mm-hmm. so it was people. But again, nations are made up of people. And specifically, sure. you know, Israel, Jacob, was the, in the essence, the founder of that nation with his 12 sons. So 
so yeah, uh, that's, that's, those are the, but those would be at least two of them. I think again, that thread goes throughout scripture. I am God. I will do what I please. My ways are above your ways. My thoughts above your thoughts. Um, hmm. so anyway. Yeah. I, I, I'm really excited when we, uh, have an Arminian guest. I want to ask about that scripture <laughs> just to hear that other perspective. Cause I, you know, I feel like Romans nine is kind of the, you know, the one that I hear a lot of reformed uh, theologians and pastors really referring to. And I don't know if I have heard an explanation um, from an Arminian viewpoint on that passage. And I, I just love to hear it because, again, I'm not my mind's not made up about a lot of that stuff. And I just I, I'm always wanting to learn with that. So, yeah. Well, and so, just let me quickly say, if you read through Romans nine, it's not just about <laughs> Jacob and Esau, but it, it gets to this thing of, you know, Paul anticipated questions that basically Arminians would ask like, well, God is unfair. You know, why would he choose one over the other? That seems just very capricious of God, right? That he's just up there almost, he becomes like a Roman God, you know, Zeus and the other gods, the pantheon of gods who were just, people were just, you know, little insects, little pawns on the chessboard, right? And they just moved them just because they felt like it. And so, you know, Paul, as he often would do, he would ask a question anticipating that this would be the question people would ask, and then he would respond to it. So it was like a rhetorical question or giving uh, what he saw as an opponent, and then he would answer. And he, he quotes the Old Testament when he says that God says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And I think part of the the tough thing about even this idea of reform theology and God's sovereignty in all things is that humanism says that man's chief end is to glorify himself and man is the highest form of creation so that we basically take on God-like authority so that I am the master of my own ship and I can do what I want to do and I can go the way I want to go. And what the Bible seems to do is to hammer us into submission that says, no, God is the only one who is truly free. And Hmm. God is the only one who truly. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, so that would be unconditional election again, probably a, a, a tough sell just, just from the human vantage point, trying to figure that one out is it's, it's a challenge to most of us, I would say. But the next one I think is one that I really don't understand. And that would be the L and tulip. So T is total depravity. U is unconditional election. L the one I, I personally struggle with, and I'd love to hear kind of what, you know, why this matters is limited atonement, limited atonement. So would you explain that and, and sell me on that one? Cause that's the one that I <laughs> have a really hard time. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't really see that, but some people do. So explain that. Yeah. In fact, you said you thought the you was the one that was controversial. I think most of the time I would just uh, push back to say it's the L you'll hear people yeah. called four point Calvinists. 
And mm -hmm. most of the time when they call themselves a four point Calvinist, it's the L issue, the limited atonement. And, uh, you know, uh, I would put it in this question is, you know, did Jesus purchase a way or a potential way for people to be saved? Or did he actual purchase people? Did, you know, did he redeem a way that people can be saved or did he actually save people? So uh, the hmm. limited atonement speaks to the idea that uh, when Jesus Christ died, he didn't just make salvation potentially available, but he actually saved a people that he had in his mind to save. Um, so, so it's limited in the sense of it's not just a, you know, open channel of grace. It is a, hey, I'm shedding my blood for all those who will be mine. Is yeah. that kind of, or all those who are already mine? Is that kind of yeah, what that so says? Yeah, so like, uh, have you ever heard the phrase, you know, while Jesus was on the cross, you were on his mind, right? Uh, sounds like mm -hmm. a sappy country song, but uh, it's it's uh, <laughs> the idea that, uh, you know, for the joy set before him, well, uh, in Hebrews uh, 12, well, is that joy based on, hey, I'm, I'm making it potentially available to anybody who will repent and believe, or is it, no, it's not potential salvation, but I actually saved people. And, you know, Mike and Gabe and Josh and, you know, I, there, are a, there is a people I have saved, my people. And so, yeah. the you know, some have called it and limited can be, it's a terrible word. So some have used like definite uh, uh, yeah. uh, atonement or particular atonement. Um, yeah. So Gabe, how does that, I mean, can you understand why people would get squeamish on that and how people would go? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is, that would be, you know, I wasn't very well versed on the, the concept of limited atonement within reformed theology, but that opens up for me, it kind of opens up, I guess, a couple more questions of like, um, first John two, two, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Or mm. like when John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right. To me, that that seems like language of uh, you know, universal like atonement. Um, so, yeah, I could see how, <laughs> like Mike was saying, that limited atonement would be um, something I would kind of be like, wait, what? You know, that, that seems like. His... So when you say universal atonement, you're not just saying. I think I hear you saying that atonement is possible for all people, not that people, all people are included in the atonement. So you're not saying universalism. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, no. So, so basically um, that he has, he has paid a price that the world, every human in the world deserve to pay. And that if we accept that atonement, any it's available to anyone who is willing to accept that atonement over their, their lives. Does that make sense? So um, yeah. yeah, not, not like, you know, universalism or anything like that, but, but rather that <laughs> beards and heretics yeah. podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> when you come to like John, so you, you started off gay with, with, you know, John. And so if you go to John 10, um, Jesus, as he's speaking to people, he says, I, I did tell you, they, you know, they ask if you're the Messiah, just tell us. And in verse 25 of John 10, Jesus says, I did tell you, and you don't believe me. The works that I do in my father's name testify about me, but you don't believe them. Because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear mm -hmm. my voice. I know them and they follow me. And then this gets into the P of Tulip. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me. So it seems that he's speaking of a particular people that have been given to him is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. And then you go to the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. Jesus says in verse nine, as he's praying, I pray for them who I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. So there is that sense where God, when he's Jesus, when he's praying for his people, he says it's not the whole world, but it's the particular people that the father has given him. So the question is, who are those people? Is it the potential people who God, again, sees down history who will respond in repentance and faith? Or it is a people that has been chosen before the foundation of the world uh, by 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 God. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a, um, that's an interesting one. Cause I think there's a lot of speculation on what does it mean by world? <laughs> you know, like you said at the beginning, like what is the, tends to what the definition of the word is, is, you know, I mean, there's a lot that one could go and say, okay, when it says that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Okay. Well, what, what, what is meant by that? What's the, you know, context in which that's written. And so I, I think that's probably hinges a lot of people's understanding on that. And then but, there's a verse, yeah. I can't remember if it's first or second Timothy, but Paul says that Jesus Christ is the savior of all, but particularly yeah. Yeah. the elect. So, yeah. Hmm. So even, you know, Paul says that there's a way in which God seems to have saved the world, but he has a particular people that he has saved, which is the elect. Yeah. Huh. Well, the next uh, the next letter. So, if you're following along, T is total depravity. U is unconditional election. L is limited atonement. I would be irresistible grace. So, talk to us about that. Yeah. So, again, uh, does God uh, batter Himself? Does He bang the door down? You know, I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want Jesus. And He's like, Well, hell yeah, you are. You know. And so He's ba- He's banging the door, beating the crap out of you until you submit to Him. Now, that's the caricature of irresistible grace. Right, but what right. the idea is that God overcomes our resistance. In other words, his calling is effectual. Uh, it has the effect of awakening within us uh, a desire to know him and to, uh, to uh, respond to him in repentance and faith. So basically, the teaching of irresistible grace is if you are elect, if you are predestined, if God has you in his sights, he is going to get you. Yeah. So it's, you know, again, uh, you know, it's, it's the idea. Some people have, again, the wrong idea, I think, or the caricature that I'm kicking and screaming, like, you know, I don't want you, God. I don't want you, God. He says, oh, yes, you do want me. And he's, you know, beating you right, in. Right, right, right. Okay. Whereas the reality of it is, is that, and this is, goes back to that changing of the heart or bringing life to a dead heart that when God, regenerates us or makes us brings life to this dead sinful heart then because my heart has been changed i now see god as lovely and and desirable okay uh so that's the idea of being born again you know second corinthians i i have uh anyone is christ he's a new creature the old things are gone new things are come and for me the most beautiful passages in second corinthians chapter four where he says in verse four, uh, in their case, talking about the people who are perishing, 
the God of this age has blinded the minds of the believers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the picture there is in the same way that God said, let there be light in creation and light appeared and shone a light on everything. My heart is veiled. It's darkened by Satan. It's blinded. But when God speaks to my heart and says, let there be light. Now that darkness falls away. The scales fall from my eyes. And where I used to see Jesus as anything but desirable, I can now see him as desirable. And so now that grace that he has given to me is a beautiful thing. And I responded in repentance and faith. Hmm. Okay. Well, and the last one I think is one that, you know, you see both Arminian and reformed, um, depending on the camp kind of going into, and that's the perseverance of the saints. So in a nutshell, that is. Yeah. What? So some people would call that eternal security, you know, the uh, as a right. Baptist, you know, it's that once saved, always saved kind of a thing. But I think that's more than that, uh, because, you know, the once saved, always saved is very susceptible to that. Well, I prayed a prayer at, you know, when I was 12 at youth camp and now I can go live any way I want to. And yet perseverance speaks to an endurance so that uh, hmm. I, you know, in fact, in Philippians 2, you know, we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, but it's God at work in us. And I, I am confident that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. It's that idea that if I have truly been saved, that God is working on my behalf within me so that I will not fall away from that salvation, but that I will endure and persevere to the end, which is both a keeping of God but it's also a work that we produce not to earn our salvation, but as a response to our salvation. So in other words, if someone is elect, they will persevere and perseverance is a sign. It's a fruit of election gift that accompanies our election that God in no way, as Jesus, we said just a little while ago, God, Jesus will never lose us. Um, But it's also a warning thing because one of my favorite books of the bible is hebrews and in hebrews the the writer keeps reminding people if you persevere if you stay you know uh, if uh, committed to christ so it, it it fights against that easy believism that says i've got a insurance policy of a you know decision for christ that i did it at youth right, camp or vbs right. or whatever and it it makes us sure of the fact that God is keeping us, but at the same time, we don't take that for granted or flippantly. Yeah. Okay. Well, very cool. So TULIP, just a summary, just so if you're following along and you're you're listening, T is total depravity. U is unconditional election. L is limited atonement. I is irresistible grace. P is perseverance of the saints. So, uh, yeah, Mike, you did a really... Good job at summarizing those, man. Thank you for giving us your viewpoint on that. And and I'm sure you would love to be representative of the entire Calvinist theology movement as a whole, right? Your your viewpoints <laughs> represent all Calvinists everywhere, worldwide, across all 
500 years of Calvinist uh, Josh, I am sure that some who will listen to this will go, oh, dear Lord, that was the best you had that you could bring on to represent this, this 500 years of Reformed theology. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. let me just real, real quick, one last thing is, you know, there's a thing called the Ordo Salutis. It's the order of salvation. It's, you know, how does salvation occur? And really, to me, it gets down to this idea of back to, you know, this idea of regeneration when my heart becomes alive to Christ. Does regeneration occur that God awakens my heart so that I then repent and believe? Or do I repent and believe and then God responds to that by granting hmm. regeneration? And so uh, I think that um, most, you know, reformed people would say, no, it's regeneration that then awakens repentance and faith, not the other way around. Um, so mm -hmm. that if I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, I can't repent and believe because I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. So it's the command of God that lets light shine in my heart that then awakens faith and repentance, not the other way around. Right. It's this idea of previent yes, grace. Exactly. Prevent like the, the grace of God before. Yeah. So. Well, awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much, man, for being on today. And thank you for just uh, explaining this so thoroughly and, and doing such a good job at bringing the scriptures in for that. And I really, really appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thank you. And then just one last thing. This should, this should uh, give us humility. 100%. Um, this is not, I boast that I have learned so much about God, but dear God, you had mercy on me, a sinner. And I think Amen. that's... Uh, for me, that's always the takeaway, which, again, is why a good theology leads to doxology. Amen. Well, awesome, man. Awesome. Well, Gabe and I are going to chat a little bit about some of the, the, the aspects of this. So uh, appreciate it, man. Yeah, yeah good yeah. talking to you, Mike. Thanks, guys. Thanks, man. So, Gabe, which parts of uh, this theology do you agree with and see biblical support for, and which parts are you not quite sure about? And yeah, how, how are you processing this as you hear that? Yeah, that's. Um, I learned a lot about Reformed theology that I didn't know, and it was good for me, I think, to have a better understanding of Reformed theology. But let me just preface it by saying um, that if there's a Reformist and an Arminianist in a boxing ring, um, fighting it out, I'm I'm probably the guy outside throwing a shot put or something like that. Like I, <laughs> you're not even in the ring; you're kind of just like, hey, well, different game. <laughs> yeah, in, in my my understanding of of the elect, and he's you know, I heard him using these terms and things, and I think we're you know, he, he and I would be speaking almost completely different language on who the elect are or or this and that because I really see. Um, I really see in the in the New Testament and Paul's writings, especially the centrality of the people in the family of Israel as um, the vehicle of salvation and redemption in the world. Um, and so, when you reference things like Romans nine, for instance, I see that Paul is talking about his own brothers, the you know his own his own people. Um, right. And I see language like he uses in Ephesians chapter two or Romans eleven. It's always language of you Gentiles, you're being welcomed to the table. You're being adopted into this family. You're being grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. And so I see um, I see a lot of Paul's focus being 
what will happen to Israel? What will happen to my... And, and a lot of it may come into the template that we see in the end of the book of Genesis, where um, Joseph is this archetype, archetype of, of Jesus going into exile and becoming the savior of the known Gentile world hmm. and being elevated to a place of prominence. And then his brothers in a time of despair coming to him and then him revealing himself. But all that happens. And he says, you know, don't worry. Joseph says what you meant for evil, God meant for good so that he could bring about a great salvation. So who is he? Who, who did Joseph save in that story? The answer is everybody. He saved his family and he saved the Egyptians from this great time of famine and hunger. And he became the savior of the world. Um, so I see Paul kind of looking to that as, you know, the centrality of, and, and Paul really being obsessed with the salvation of Israel and then mm. accepting their Messiah. And then he even goes on to say, you know, you Gentiles um, who come into the faith and believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my hope for you is that you will um, provoke some of my brothers to jealousy and right. by doing so, they will be saved as well. So you see a lot of the election passages in Paul's writings referring more to God's sovereign choice of Israel. Is that kind of how you would interpret that? Yeah. And so and yeah. I, th I think a lot of reformists and, and I mean, I, I was, I did this as well. Most of my life is that I drew a dichotomy and this is kind of a dispensational viewpoint of there was an era of Israel. There was an, now there's an era of church. And the two don't really overlap. Where I was, I would see that the era of Israel um, is a continual theme throughout Scripture, and that Gentiles who come to faith in Christ have an adoption into the commonwealth of Israel, and that there isn't this new, you know, dispensation of church age, so to speak. And it's. Um, it's something I know flies in the face of a lot of a lot of church theology, obviously, but um, it's uh, it's something maybe we can pack, unpackage in the future. Yeah, I, I think I would love to to talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, when I, I listen to Mike talk, um, I think the the part that I'm just like mm, I'm not so and, and again I think this is picking on Mike. Mike is just an incredible dude, and he knows his Bible and he believes this stuff. Um, because of what he sees in the scriptures. But I think when I was listening to him explain limited atonement, that's that's the area, I think, of Calvinist mm. theology that I struggle the most with. Um, because of what we talked about, just, I mean, he says in the scriptures, <laughs> not just for your sins, but the sins of the whole world. I mean, that that's a, mm. I don't know. I mean, it, to me, it's just kind of like, I, it says this in the Bible. I don't know how one could get, that that doesn't mean what it means. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that's yeah, just the yeah. hard sell for me. Um, yeah, kind of a tough pill to swallow. But yeah, I can see I can see how there is a degree of exclusivity to Christ's sacrifice. Like in Matthew 15, right. where he says, you know, remember this woman comes up to him and and he didn't he didn't talk to her. And his disciples they say they're like, can you send her away? She keeps bothering us. Basically, she, she keeps crying out to us. And he says, um, I was sent only to the lost sheep. Of the house of Israel. Yeah. So yeah. there is a, a degree of exclusivity, but I think it's important that we get, we, we look at the gospel through the eyes of number one, you know, what, what did Christ see himself coming to do? 
and then and then also the apostles and their writings. How did they see what was his mission as the Messiah of Israel, um, and what was their expectation of the role of Messiah? Um, and so I would see it as a reversal of exile, that the gospel is the the ingathering of the exiles. It's yeah. the establishment of the kingdom. Um, and they even ask him, at what point will you restore the kingdom of Israel? And he's like, well, you know, it doesn't say, oh, hey, no, I'm I'm not doing that. You know, like I'm not, that's not. Right, 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 right. But he says, you know, it's it's not for you to know, you know. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think it's, it's kind of key for me in, in kind of changing my paradigm on this and where, like I said, kind of puts me out throwing the shot put is Jeremiah 31 and where Jeremiah is saying, you know, the Lord is giving him this prophetic utterance and he says, behold, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And, you know, it won't be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. And it goes, goes on and it talks about how I put my, my, my Torah in their hearts. And um, so the, the concept of a new covenant, um, and it uses the word brit chadasha in the Hebrew there, it's a renewed covenant. Um, it's, it's, this idea, this expectation that he reveals through his prophet Jeremiah that I'm going to renew things with my people Israel. I'm not going to cut them off and, and start with plan B or anything like that, but but rather my covenant is going to be with them. And that not only that, Isaiah talks about how um, he will, it, it, it's too small of a thing for him to regather the exiles of Israel, but he will gather some that are part of the nations, part of the goyim, the Gentiles, and bring them into a covenant with the common, and I think that's what Paul maybe is picking up and kind of riffing on as well. Right, 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 right. Hmm. Well, la- last question. We'll ask this about um, the Arminian viewpoint when we have an Arminian uh, the- theologian, a resident theologian. Uh, if this system of theology is completely true, so if you just looked at all five points and you said, absolutely, I'm in, I, I will buy into all five letters of the tulip. What are some of the benefits of it, and what could be some of the dangers in it? Mm. Well, I think definitely um, the the irresistible grace. Um, you know, I, I know people who would say uh, God wants nothing to do with me; that that I've done things that are irredeemable. Um, I think the ir- irresistible grace is something that absolutely I think is is beautiful and godly and holy and biblical. Um, that he he pursues us with his grace and. Um, you know, God, God, God loved Adolf Hitler, <laughs> you know, he loves every human and he wants to be in relationship with them. Um, that there are things, you know, obviously we have to, to face our own sin and the repercussions of that sin. But, um, yeah, I think that I, I like that irresistible grace and that's something yeah. I didn't really understand until Mike was explaining it. Yeah. I, I would think that if one were to take all five points and just say, yes and amen to all of them, Mm -hmm. um, it would produce in someone just a tremendous sense of gratitude, Mm -hmm. a tremendous sense of like, I can't take credit for any of this, that this is all the work of God in my life. And even me responding to the work of God in my life, it was God who loved me first. And so I responded to his love for me first. So that would be what I would see would be just a, a tremendous benefit from someone just understanding all of this and receiving all of that. But I think some of the dangers in it might be on the same side of that. Someone almost feeling uh, like this 
well, since I'm chosen, since I'm predestined, since God's shown grace to me and I can't add anything to his work, I don't really have to be a disciple. I don't really have to take up my cross and follow Jesus because I'm in the family anyway. And so almost like this sanctioned disobedience, this sanctioned indifference, this sanctioned yeah, almost like you know, hey, I'm I'm predestined, you're not. So nanny nanny boo boo, right? And <laughs> and and that means I don't have to do anything. And I would say, obviously, to be a distortion of that because you know I don't think responsible, mature Christians who would lean towards this would say that that's you know a practical out outcropping of this. But you know, I, I can see that being a danger. Yeah, yeah, he creates maybe maybe sense of lackadaisical, like I'm not going to go and evangelize or try to make disciples because, mm-hmm. you know, if they're, if they're elect, they'll be drawn to it and they'll seek me out. Right. Or they'll seek out a church or something. Right. Right. Um, right. But I, I do I think, like, Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to, I was going to kind of make a joke, but it's tongue in cheek. It's halfway true. Mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. I've seen um, some very, 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 very like rabidly, uh, ferociously, um, egg-headed young reformed guys mm. like they become everybody's theology mm. police yeah Something like, <laughs> yeah no i know what you're saying like, you, like they you, read a, a book by john piper and then all of a sudden they you start you start a blog and you, you're yeah you know, everybody yeah, yeah. yeah everybody's teaching a man-centered gospel you know if you're not john piper and so like i think i've seen you know i'm making a joke about that but i'm you know I'm not, I'm not really kidding. Um, I think one outcropping of this is like a tremendous amount of like intellectual arrogance mm-hmm. that like, if you don't, if you're not reformed, then you never read your Bible. Well, I think, <laughs> I think Mike, Mike did a good job of addressing that, you know, this should in us produce humility and, yes, 100%. and, and worship. Um, because yeah, that, that might be a propensity within the reformed theology is, is to get a little bit pinheaded or, or, you know, um, like you said, stuck up. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, or maybe, gosh, God forbid, you like you grow beards and start a podcast or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, reform guys typically really like like you know dark stouts and smoking pipes and Lord of the Rings and things like that for whatever reason. I don't know why, uh, but uh, yeah, I think I like the total depravity thing. I think that's very scriptural as well. Uh, there's yeah. Alexander, uh, I think it's. Uh, uh, Solon, Soloninsky. I don't know if I'm yeah, probably butchering. Yeah, thank you. I'm probably butchering that. But he talks about <laughs> how it'd be so easy if there was like evil people, good people, and the line is very clear. It's very you know defined. But he says the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Amen. And yep. who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Um, mm-hmm. I think that's just a amazing, insightful quote. I don't know if he was a believer, if he read the Bible. I don't. I don't even know his worldview, but what he said is very biblical um, yeah. that in us is the capability, the, the ability and the, the potential to commit so much evil. Um, it's just, it's, it's so sickening. And then when we're confronted with the holiness of God and, and his wrath, like Mike was saying, it produces an awe and a, and a gratitude and a fear in us um, mm-hmm. that would drive us to the gospel and accepting it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, good deal. Well, I've, I've really enjoyed this. This has been a really, uh, I think I'm going to have to process this conversation for the rest of the day because this is <laughs> this yeah. is like the deep end of the pool theologically. But uh, just so everybody knows, this is part one of a two-part installment. So next time we're going to be um, 
looking at all these things with someone who would consider themselves more of an Arminian in their mm-hmm. theological bent. And uh, I'm man, I, I'm going to study up what Mike talked about and come ready to ask our uh, our Arminian Arminian theologian friend um, some good questions. So yeah, it's going to be yeah. good. Thanks again, Mike, for coming on if you're still listening. And thank you all for, for listening this far. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.